Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 39. And I would direct your attention to verses 4 and 5. Psalm 39, considering together with the Lord's help, verses 4 and 5. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Time, time like space, has boundaries. So it has a beginning. You think of the cosmos as a whole. Uh, It began some 6,000 years ago. And we can look forward to time in this world, and behold, it has an end as well. The Bible speaks of the last day, the day of judgment. But you also see the same thing at the micro level. You see it in terms of your own life and existence. You began to exist at conception in in your mother's womb, and life in this world will end at uh, the time of, of your death. But eternity, in terms of everlasting existence, by way of contrast, does not have these same boundaries because it has no end. Death is actually not the end, capital E, end, right? It is actually the beginning of the beginning for everyone who's born into this world. Why? Because you were made to exist forever, and God has designed it that way. And so while you began at conception, your existence endures everlasting. Right? It goes on and on without, without end. And so in that sense, there is, and in other senses, there is a vast inequality between time and eternity. A vast inequality between time and eternity. Now, this is, I think, something relatively easy to affirm conceptually, relatively easy for us to affirm conceptually. The difficulty lies elsewhere. The difficulty lies in in actually, in truly seeing it, in, in maintaining a clear sight of it to such an extent that we're able to live in the light of it in the light of its transforming influences on us. This contrast between time and eternity. Well, the title of our sermon uh, this evening is The Measure of Our Days, taken from verse 4, and the measure of my days, uh, what it is. We're going to note three things this evening. Simple, uh, brief things for us to, to give, to consider for our meditation. First of all, we begin with measuring time. So first of all, measuring time. You'll note in our passage in verse 5, it says, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, mine age is as nothing before thee. And then at the beginning of verse 4, Lord, make me to know mine end. Actually, very similar to what we sang from Psalm 90, which also says, Uh, basically the same thing, to make us a prayer, asking the Lord to make us to know our end. And so measuring time, right? Our, Our life consists of days, and days can be easily numbered. We can measure them. We can say how long it is that a person has lived, whether they died in their infancy or youth or middle age or or old age. In fact, the whole history of the world is actually marked by innumerable numbers of gravestones. And your own life, however long you've lived, has been marked by gravestones. 
So there are those who, since your birth, have been laid in the ground and dates have been engraven onto those stones to mark uh, their beginning and their end. We can number our, our days. And so in verse 4, or excuse me, in verse 5, he describes our days as a handbreadth. And what we have here is the Lord underlining the brevity, the brevity of life in this world, the brevity of life in this world. And this is actually a constant theme. If you open your eyes for it, you'll find it everywhere. It's in the Pentateuch, it's in the Psalms, it's in the prophets, it's in the gospels, and it's in the epistles. We see it as a recurring refrain, the brevity, the brevity of, of life. And the Lord gives us a variety of pictures uh, in order to reinforce this in our, in our minds. Here in verse, um, in verse 5, our life is described, the span of our life is described as a handbreadth. So children, that's the, the span of a person's hand, right? The width of a person's hand, which is about, what, four inches or, or thereabouts. And so he's saying, your life, the totality of your life, your life in this world, even if you live into ripe old age, if it's to be measured, it amounts to four inches, right? It's a picture of short brevity. And it's interesting that the Lord has given us that picture so close to us. It's our hand. So that, so that literally on a day-to-day basis, you, you use your hand to brush your teeth, to pick up your fork, to turn a doorknob. You see your hand countless numbers of times a day. You have this permanent, as it were, in this life, reminder of how brief your time is. Every, how every time you glance at your hand, you have the brevity of life shouting at you. Another picture that the Lord gives us is that life is like a watch in the night. The night is divided up into, into watches. And, you know, in terms of military, you would have people that are uh, devoted to to filling one watch where they're on guard for that period and then someone else replaces them in the second watch of the night and then in the third watch of the night and so on. And so it's that brief span in the middle of the night. He's saying, that's your, that's your whole life. Your whole life is like that. It's like a watch in, in the night. It's also described elsewhere as a sleep, that the duration of your life is as a sleep. Children, think about this. You lie down in your bed, you put your head on your pillow, you pull up your covers, and you coast off into sleep, and it feels like it's been two seconds. And then you wake up. You wake up, and it's morning. And of course, hours have passed, but in terms of how it feels, it feels like you just fell asleep a couple of seconds ago. He says, that's how life is, right? Life is, is brief. It's like a sleep. It's like a flood, he tells us elsewhere. That the, the brevity of our life, you think of a, you know, torrential rains and a dam breaks and whatever, and there's this, you know, feet and feet of water and it comes crashing through an area. And the things that were there are in an instant, in a second, all of it is just swept away like rubbish, right? Broken into, into tatters and swept downstream with the flood, carried away. That's our life. The brevity of our life carried away, as it were, with a flood. The most common picture that the Lord gives us, we see this in the Psalms, we see this in the prophets, uh, we see it in the epistles, for example, in James 1, is the picture of our life being like grass or like a flower. So grass that grows up in the morning and then it's cut down in the evening and then it withers away. That, that vibrant green just withers and wilts away. Or a flower, the same thing. You're like a flower. It's so beautiful. And yet it's so incredibly temporary. Right? It dies so quickly. That's the picture of our life. Grass that is cut down. Flower that is cut and fades. Another picture that the Lord gives to us of the brevity of our life is this. He says our life is like a tale that was told. It's like a tale that was told in Psalm 90, uh, verse, verse 9. We, we tell stories for amusement. Again, children, you'll appreciate this. You'll say at bedtime, you know, tell me a story, daddy, or read me uh, a short story, mama. And so we, we do so. We'll, we'll tell a tale for, for amusement. What happens? To tell a tale is something that, again, is brief. It's quick. It's, it's soon over. And it's also 
soon forgotten. We forget what it is that we've heard. We have to hear it again on another occasion to be reminded of it. This is the picture of your life. It's like a tale that was once told and has long since been over and, and forgotten. You know, our life is like, you know, the, 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 the things that we build in the sand on the seashore and the waves come in and they're washed away and you look afterward and it's just back to, to, to just flat sand that was there. No one who comes by in the hours following will have any knowledge or recollection of what, what had been there. Our life is like that. Children remember parents who die. Grandchildren remember great, uh, grandparents that die. Maybe we remember our great-grandparents. Maybe, just maybe, we've heard a few little stories about a great-great-grandparent. But you, you get beyond three or four generations and almost nothing is known of you. Almost nothing is remembered. Almost nothing is recounted. You disappear. And that brief life is, is gone. Right? This is a picture. Right? We're being called here to measure time and to employ all that God has given to us uh, to do that. These various pictures that show the brevity of time. Time is so incredibly short. Who knows this best, by the way? Is it the five-year-old? Who knows this best? Or is it the 85-year-old who knows this best? That time is so short. The answer is easy. The 85-year-old is the one who knows best how short time is. And they all have, everyone who lives to old age, their 80s or 90s or whatever, they all have the same recurring refrain. Right? It's unanimous. They all say, I don't know where it went. Time passed so quickly. I feel as if I was a young man or a young woman just yesterday. Time went so quickly, right? They're able uh, to tell us. And we have some experience of that wherever we are in our own development. We have some experience of that ourselves. And so in measuring time, we see its incredible brevity, but we also see its fragility. Notice verse 4 Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Our margin says what time I have here. But the picture is that of frailty, fragility. This world is so incredibly fragile, so incredibly breakable. We break things, not just our bodies, which break down, but things in our life break. And relationships break and uh, pursuits in terms of vocation break and all sorts of other things all around us break in society at large. It is, it's all characterized by fragility. You know, great nations become empires, which then are wiped off the face of the earth and reduced to footnotes in textbooks. Businesses are built up at tremendous amounts of effort and sacrifice and labor and money and so on. Those businesses die. They don't exist, you know, much time, much, much later from, from their height and so on. And this could be multiplied to just about everything that we see in this world. There's a fragility, the frailty as we begin to measure time. There's also a vanity in it. You see in verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state, or as the margin says, settled state, is altogether vanity. So man who is the most deeply planted, the, the most well-grounded, the most um, who has the, the greatest foundation laid in their life, the one who is settled, who is at his absolute best, when we begin to measure time, we discover the vanity of it, the utter vanity of man, even at his best. How much more everything else around us, the vanity of the things of time, the things of this world. It would be a good exercise for you. You know, you, you, you have things in your life that you're excited about, that you're focused on, that you give your time to, that you've set your affections on, and they're things the curtains you're hanging, the plants that you're planting, the car that you've purchased, the house that you're building, the whatever, all of these sorts of things. 
The Bible says that every, every bit of this, all of it, will be reduced to ash. So it is, it is all going to be burned in the end when the Lord comes and burns the whole cosmos with fire in order uh, to, to purify it. Now, the fact is, of course, most of that stuff will end up in the junkyard long, long, long before uh, it's burned to ash. But it's a helpful exercise, I think, for us to actually take God at his word, to not just hear it, but believe it, and in believing it, to think in terms of it, so that you stand before whatever the thing is, you choose the item in your own mind, you place whatever the item is before your own eye, and vividly picture it as a heap of ash. Picture that thing having been burned to ash. Can you get that in your mind? That is reality. That's the truth. That's, that's what God says. And I think if we can picture this vanity in our measuring of time, the things of, of time, it will help us to loosen our the grip of our hearts upon them. Because we're actually receiving the word of God, believing it, being transformed by it, and thinking God's thoughts after him. So that we see things as God sees them, which is to say that we see them in their reality, rather than in our, make, our make-believe world, where we pretend everything isn't vanity. That it has some enduring importance when it doesn't. You'll remember the language of 1 Timothy 6, where the Lord tells us in measuring time and the things of, of time, the things of this world, there's this, this long section in 1 Timothy 6, and we won't read the whole thing. You can, you can really begin at verse 4 or verse 6, but, but look, at, um, look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We brought nothing into this world. We know that. We were born naked. We didn't even have the clothes on our back when we were born. We had no possessions, no food, no nothing. And he says, as we came into this world, so we're going to go out of this world. That, that you cannot carry with you through the door of death Anything that belongs to time, anything that belongs to this world, you're not even taking your body with you at death. You have to wait for that for, for the resurrection. So in a sense, you leave the world with less than you came into the world as far as that goes. But the fact is you can take nothing with you. And so this is another thing. We hear it. We know it. We affirm it. We say that's true. But to actually get these truths into our heads and into our hearts so that it transforms how we see. So that we're thinking in terms of, this isn't going with me. I'm going, and I'm going soon. We've, we've discussed already the brevity. right? Time is short. And so I, I'm going to be leaving this world soon. And when I do, none of this is coming with me. You think of... You get this in the Psalms, how it speaks of the great men and how they have estates and they, all this stuff, and they name things after themselves and so on and so forth. But they die, and they have to leave it to others. And they can't bring it, can't bring it with them. Right? This is part of what it means to measure time, to see as well its vanity. And so the fact is, my friend, every one of you, you will die soon. You will die soon. So this is building on everything we covered last Wednesday evening. You will die soon. The question is, then what? That's the question. Then what? I've been at the deathbed of a number of people, quite a few people as a minister of the gospel. I have yet to hear anyone on their deathbed expressing regrets that they had not had more time to play. I haven't heard anyone yet expressing regrets that they hadn't accumulated more stuff. Not a single one. And in my collective experience in talking to other ministers, neither have they. So the question is, you'll die, you'll die soon. Then what? 
Well, measuring time. Secondly, then, measuring eternity. Here's the contrast. Measuring eternity. When I say eternity here, I'm speaking of everlasting existence. So I'm speaking of the totality of your existence. I'm not speaking of the attribute of God. I'm not using eternity in that sense. I'm using it in terms of your everlasting uh, existence, your whole existence. So in verse 4 of, of this passage here in Psalm 39, he says, Make me to know mine end. Make me to know mine end. That language, make me to know mine end, is, is equivalent to asking the Lord, bring me to death's door and point through it to what follows in eternity. Make me to know mine end. Bring me, to the, bring me in my mind's eye to death's door and enable me to look through it. And to see all that follows in eternity. Because your end, my friend, your end is where you spend eternity. That is your end. Where you spend eternity is your end. So we're measuring eternity here. And what do we know about eternity? Everlasting existence. Well, the first thing that we recognize is its longevity. So this is in contrast to the brevity in our measuring of time. When we measure eternity, what's striking to us is its longevity, right? This is best captured in the repeated language in Scripture, forever and ever, right? Those who are unbelieving will go off into utter darkness and the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. The believing people of God will be taken into the kingdom and into the joy of the Lord and so on to behold his glory and be there forever and ever. Now, this, this, this is difficult for us, right? This is because measuring days, counting days and months and years, that's, that's easy. How do we get into our head the ability to calculate what is endless? We can do so conceptually. We can acknowledge it almost instantly. But to actually get this into our head and hearts, to think in terms of the, the duration of, of something that never, ever ends, right? To, to, to look to a, what, what amounts to a sureless eternity, no boundary on the other end. And so if you can think in terms of trillions and trillions and trillions of trillions of years, you're no sooner to the end at that point than when you began, when you entered into eternity. I've said this before, I think, but one of my children, when they were small, this topic had come up in, in family worship, and it was probably a day later, and the, the child comes to me and says, Daddy, when I think of eternity, it makes my head hurt. And he was being serious, right? It, it makes my, my head hurt. I said, son, that's good. That means you're, you're actually, you're actually, you're getting to something because it should make, as it were, our, our head hurt, right? Sin is for a season. It's for this brief period in, in this world. But we need to look beyond that to the recompense of the reward. For the unconverted, that means looking to the wages of sin, which is eternal death, seeing the reward that this sin for a season yields. What does it bring? It brings everlasting destruction and death and horror. And if you were able to conjure up the most terrifying, horrific nightmare that any person has ever had since Adam, you would have to multiply it by thousands to conceptualize what that lost eternity looks like. But for the believer, like with Moses, who looked, you know, at sin for a season in contrast to the recompense of the reward, there was no comparison whatsoever, as we'll get to more in a minute. The fact is, if you can see something of this longevity, if you can see something of the, the truth of it, if you can catch a whiff, a taste of it, if you can catch a glimpse of it and somehow it penetrates your heart and conscience and so on, 
And if you can think in terms of the longevity of the, of, of the reward of God's people, you would literally drop everything. You would drop everything for that, to have that in pursuit of that. Why? Because another characteristic when we measure eternity is its durability. Right? This is in contrast to what we said with regards to time being characterized by frailty, fragility. Eternity is characterized by durability. You cannot die. You want to talk about durability, a body that can never wear out. For the Lord's people, this is the greatest news ever, right? The, the fact that, the, that their bodies can't die in glory and will be there forever. And it is the absolute worst nightmare for the unconverted because their body can never die either. Despite all the gnawing of the worm that Christ speaks of. Because it's sustained, sustained existence by the power of God himself. And so the durability brings us to the doctrine of the resurrection. And we think of the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. This is a cardinal doctrine and it's something that can be opened up in a whole series of 20 sermons, you know, just on, on this, this point itself, the idea of an indestructible body. Here, to live with an eye to the resurrection, in contrast to living to stuffing with, with an eye toward immediate gratification of the, the desires and appetites of the body right here and right now. Stuffing your face or pursuing sensual pleasures or whatever else it is. No, it's living. It's being able to see something here, to see the glory of the resurrection and, and to be certain of it. Right? You notice that, that language in, in, in 1 Timothy 6, certain that you can take nothing with you. Right? There's a certainty in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the, the chief chapter on, on the resurrection. It's certainty that is being reinforced throughout that whole chapter to be completely confident of it, to recognize that, that the, the resurrection is more certain to us than, than, we're, than the fact that we're going to take another breath or that we're sitting in, in the, the church building of Greenville Presbyterian Church, right, to live under the power of the reality of the resurrection. And, it's, and, and so not only confidence in, in the fact that it's coming, but a sight of the exquisite glory that it entails. To have a body that is glorified, united with a soul that is sinlessly perfected and preserved in that sinless state for all of eternity. Who can, who can imagine the glory that this entails reflecting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? being patterned after the glory of his own glorified body and the glory of using the body and soul to bask in the light of the countenance of the Lord Jesus Christ, to enjoy the most unimaginable, exquisite pleasures and joys that are not only unending but ever-expanding into an endless eternity. Like this is durability to catch a sight of the glory that is to come. Make me to know mine end. But there's also the enormity as we measure eternity, the enormity of it. This is in contrast to vanity. Vanity is, is that which is empty, right? Vanity is nothingness. In the language of our passage, my, mine age is as nothing, right? It's another way of speaking of vanity. But in, in terms of eternity, there's enormity. There's, there's a permanence there's a permanence to eternity. There is no other thing that follows it. There's nothing else coming. Right now we can say tomorrow's coming and next day is, you know, next week is coming if we're spared or a decade or even when we're gone in time before Christ's return, there's, there's perhaps periods of time that are yet to come and so on and so forth. We can think in terms of that. But in eternity, there's permanence. It's the permanent state of all men forever. 
And so you get to the end of the book of, of Revelation and you know, the Lord is, is speaking of the glory of heaven and, and so on and so forth. And he, he says, let those who are godly remain ungodly still. Let those who are, who are godly remain godly still. What you are when you die, the state you find yourself in spiritually, spiritually dead or alive, converted or unconverted, godly or wicked, is sealed when you pass through death's door. There's a permanence in that. But there's also a permanence when it comes to the treasures. Right? This world, we said, you know, stuff breaks and you lose things. And, you know, stuff that one time you, you loved goes eventually to the junkyard. And what's more, it's all going to be turned to ash in the end. But then we think of the treasures of, of eternity, the treasures that are in heaven. And you'll remember not only, you know, you'll remember for sure the language of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the language of Matthew 6, where Jesus treats this for half, practically half of a chapter. But it's, it's found in all sorts of other places throughout the, uh, the New Testament record as well. But you'll remember Jesus' language in Matthew 6 when he's saying, listen, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because of its permanence. He says, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. Right? This is where you need treasure. The fact is that all of the treasure that is accumulated by the Lord's people in this life, laid up in heaven, have an enormity about them and a permanence to them. They endure like, unlike anything else in this world. And so we measure eternity and we begin to think through all of some of the things that this entails and we can get a picture of it, but it needs to captivate our imaginations. It needs to, it needs to be deeply implanted in our minds. It needs to inflame our hearts. We need to be so absolutely confident about it and so absolutely enthused about it that it transforms how we see everything else, that it Eternity is what is big to us. And time is what is small to us. When that happens, because right now, time feels big, right? Everything that's happening in the world, the nation, in our life, at work, and the family, and all, all this stuff seems huge and big and important and pressing and so on and so forth. That seems big. And eternity can retreat into the background of our hearts and minds to something that's small. What we need is the inversion of that, right? We need the reverse of that so that eternity is what looms large in our, and captures our, our hearts and, and, and our minds. And then time seems small. And when that happens, and to the degree that that happens, you're actually now living in reality because eternity is huge and time is small. You're actually conforming your mind to the thought and mind of God. You're seeing rightly. You're seeing truly. And so the fact is that as we measure eternity, you have reinforced what I noted earlier, and that is that you were made to live forever. God has made you to live forever. And you will most certainly live forever. And so for those of you who are unconverted, this needs to come by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, it needs to come home. It needs to be brought to the quick of your consciences. That rather than making your little mud pies at the seashore, you would be able to lift your eyes uh, to that which is far excels gold, silver, and precious jewels in, in, in this world. To realize that there's nothing you can do to unwind the everlasting nature of your existence. There's no way to get out of it. 
And because of these truths, because this is the fact, this is reality, it should, it should impact you if you're unconverted. It should impact you in terms of the absolute necessity of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you give for, in exchange for your soul? That soul that is immortal. What, what's worth more than your soul? There's nothing in the world worth more than a single soul. Because this world passes away and that soul endures forever. Oh, that God would come and pursue you and overtake you and subdue you and bring you to see the frailty and the brevity and fragility of this life, to see the, the longevity and durability and enormity of the world to come and to send you with flight to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, to say, I am in sin. I was born in sin. I've lived all my days in sin. And the Bible says that if I die in my sins, I will go off to a lost eternity. And the only answer is in the Savior to deliver you from that sin. The sin bearer. The Savior of sinners. And so we begin, first of all, by measuring time, however briefly. Measuring eternity, perhaps even more briefly. Thirdly, we come to measuring the difference. So thirdly, measuring the difference. And note the conclusion in verse, in one of the conclusions in verse 5. And mine age is as nothing before thee. And mine age is as nothing before thee. This is the conclusion that comes from measuring the difference between time on one hand and the weight of eternity on the other. And you'll see this coming out in lots of places. For example, 2 Corinthians 4, at the end, verse 17. For our light affliction, what which is but for a moment, a split second, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so you have a moment on one hand, and you have the eternal weight of glory on the other hand, contrast and comparison. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So the believer is looking not merely at what's seen in time and in this world, but looking at what can't be seen, but is revealed in the word in eternity. For the things which are seen are temporal. There's time. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Contrast and comparison. Right? We get this coming out in a variety of places. Romans 8 would be another example. Verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Contrast and comparison. He says, I hold up time. I hold up eternity. I hold up things of this world, suffering. I hold up the glory that is to come. And when I compare them, they're incomparable. So vast and great is the eternity, eter eternal, that time is nothing in comparison. And so you come back to Psalm 39. And mine age is as nothing before thee. We need to see clearly time in light of eternity. And the fact is, if you're honest with yourself... The fact is, you infrequently look beyond hours, days, and years, right? You have your planner, you have your calendar on your phone or on the wall, you have stuff on your computer, you're super, super, super good at keeping track of when your appointments are and when scheduling what your responsibilities are and planning things and so on. And you think all the time in terms of what happens at two o'clock and three o'clock and what happens tomorrow and what happens next week and what are we doing two months from now and so on and so forth. You think you're saturated with thinking about hours and days and years and so on. And you infrequently think by contrast 
of the shoreless expanse of eternity. What we need is persuasion by the Spirit of God. What we need is the certainty that the Bible actually provides us. What you need is the felt reality of living in light of eternity. You need that felt reality so that it's transforming and controlling and filtering everything you see and think and do and so on and so forth. It needs to get into your head. It needs to get into your heart. It needs to get into my head. It needs to get into, into my heart so that eternity is more real to us than time. So that it actually controls our lives, the thought of it. But when we're measuring the difference, it does something else. It demonstrates time's scarcity. So we, we've said, okay, eternity's huge, time is small. Well, that does something for us, does something else for us than what I've already said. It shows us the scarcity of time. It is small, it is brief, it is fragile, it is rare in that sense, in contrast to eternity. And if you can see time scarcity, then you can see that it is too precious of a commodity to waste. Because it's so brief. Because it's so small. We can't squander it. We can't waste it. It's too precious of a commodity to waste. As I've said to you on other occasions, probably several, time is of incomparably greater value than money. Money and time intersect all the time in our lives. But if you're thinking biblically, time is always worth far more than the money. You can lose money and regain it and multiply it and get more. When you lose time, you never get it back. You can never multiply it. It's too precious a commodity to waste. It's of greater value than money. And so what do we do if we're not going to waste it? Well, it's simple. To, 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 to kind of sustain my metaphor, it is a commodity to be invested. Time is a commodity to be invested. And here's what the Bible tells us. It yields astronomical returns in eternity. Every second, minute, hour, day, week, year, month, year, decade, whatever, invested for the Lord and his kingdom, invested in souls, invested in his word, invested in what lasts forever, yields astronomical returns in eternity. Small investment, comparatively, for unimaginable rewards. The Lord says that our use of time results in rich rewards. And as we've already noted in the second point, it is rich rewards that endure. That can be enjoyed forever. The problem is. Once again, you don't see it, which is another way of saying you don't believe it. Because if we believed it, that's the same in this instance as us seeing it, seeing it spiritually, seeing it, tasting it, being impacted by it. Because then we would say we would look at our planner, our schedule, your phone, whatever else it is, and you would say, how in the world can I squeeze in any way possible more out of whatever's there for, for eternity? Every little bit and piece that I can muster, find, and invest for eternity. It would control decisions you make and what you do and don't do. The fact is that we we need this. We need this greatly. As someone said, there's, 
You know the phrase, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. It's true. Only what's done for the Lord Jesus Christ will last. It puts, it puts uh, by way of contrast, kind of the, the modern evangelical minimalism in its true light, where people professing Christians think to themselves, well, I can parcel out some tiny bits of time for Christ and use the whole balance of the rest for my miserable self. I'll parcel out a little, a little, a little tiny bit of time for Jesus. Isn't this so wonderful? I have my little five-minute quiet time, and I read a few verses and say a small prayer, and so on and so forth. I've done something so grand and glorious because I've given Christ this. Reprehensibly terrible to think that we're doing Jesus a favor when it is actually an offense. The fact is that we're all on Christ's clock. He owns all time. He owns all of our time. We're on his clock. So at the end of the day, we actually don't have any time for ourselves. There's no time that we can claim that's our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, we're to glorify him with our bodies and with our spirits. We belong to him. We're on his clock. And so we're to use it for him, for Christ, for his kingdom, our soul, the souls of others, his word, so on and so forth. It's all for him. You know, people speak about killing time. Well, we've got some time to kill. You know, how do you want to kill some time? Killing time is killing souls. The modern idea of killing time is killing your soul. People think of pastime. What are we going to do in our pastimes? What pastimes? It's not to say that we can't do a variety of things. The Lord gives us. We need exercise our bodies and whatever else. I'm not saying that. But those really shouldn't be thought of as pastimes if we're thinking as Christians. Even that should be used for the Lord, with the Lord. It's not just what we do, but it's why we do it. Why is it that we do what we do? So to take that example of exercise, are you exercising in order that you might look good to others? Well, repent of that. Are you exercising because you'll feel good for yourself? Actually, both of those things are for yourself. Repent of that. Or are you doing it because, number one, you want to be able to maximize all that you can accomplish for Christ and his glory and his kingdom? Well, praise be to God for that. And because you can get two birds with one stone and spend that time with the Lord. Well, praise the Lord for that too. Why are we doing things that we're doing? That reveals things about us as well, doesn't it? And so we need to be measuring the difference. Measuring the difference. Second Peter chapter 3. You know, again, a big chunk of this chapter is actually given to this theme. Notice verse 12, looking for, that's seeing, and hasting the coming unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look. We're looking, we're seeing. We look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We're looking into eternity. What impact do you think that makes? This whole thing is couched in terms of, practi in terms of practical payoff for your piety. The end of verse 11, he says, seeing all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation or behavior and godliness? This change of perspective results in holy behavior and godliness, or verse 14, which comes right after it. Wherefore, in light of the fact that you're looking for eternity, new heavens and new earth, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. 
These things trickle down into our piety, into our, the practical godliness of the Christian life. We begin by measuring time, and all of a sudden, it shrinks. We see it. It's brief. We, 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 we get out and measure through the Scriptures eternity, and we see it's way beyond staggering our imagination, the, the vastness of it. And then we, we come and measure the difference, holding one in one hand and one in the other in our mind's eye. And the impact transforms us. This is why we get it in Psalm 39 and Psalm 90 and Psalm 103 and all sorts of other psalms where this theme is woven out, woven through. Because the Lord desires us to be brought under its influence. You'll know well, the, and I'll close with this, the, the quote from 20th century missionary South America, Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep for what to gain what he can never lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. He's on to something. Right? That's a, a pithy way of capturing what the Bible itself is teaching us. Well, may the Lord help us as we reflect on these truths. Let's stand for prayer. Our eternal God in heaven, we come as creatures before the Creator. We come as those who are bound in time to the one who is eternal in thy being. And we pray, O Lord, give us wisdom. Enable us to think thy thoughts after thee. Enable us to, to hear the word of God, to, to lay hold of it, to believe it. Grant, Lord, that it would impact us and transform and change us. Enable us, O Lord, to live in light of these truths. Give us, O Lord, to be a people whose citizenship is in heaven. And we ask that in doing so, we would be made fruitful to the glory of our Redeemer, that we would be enabled by thy grace through thy Spirit to bring great honor and glory to thy name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.